Woods, and Jesse Korn's radio went silent. Lydia Johansson stumbled backward and screamed again as the boy leapt from the tall sedge and grabbed her arms with his pinching fingers. Oh, Jesus, Lord, please don't hurt me. Shut up. He was tall and skinny, like most sixteen-year-olds in small Carolina towns, and very strong. His skin was red and welty, from a run-in with poison oak it looked like, and he had a sloppy crew cut that looked like he'd done it himself. I just brought flowers. That's all. I didn't... Angrily, he clamped a hand over her mouth. She felt him press against her body, smelled his sour, unwashed odor. You're hurting me. Just shut up. He shook her furiously, as if she were a disobedient dog. One of his sneakers slipped off in the struggle, but he paid no attention. From the top of the hill, Jesse Korn called. Lydia, where are you? The boy reached into his pocket and showed her a knife. You scream, and you get hurt bad. He pulled her toward the river. Lydia glanced back and saw Jesse Korn standing by the roadside one hundred yards away, surveying the landscape. Hey, he cried, seeing them at last. He started down the hill. But they were already at the riverbank, where the boy had hidden a small skiff. He shoved Lydia in and pushed off, rowing hard to the far side of the river. He beached the boat and yanked her out, then dragged her into the woods. Where are we going? To see Mary Beth. You're going to be with her. Why? Why me? But he said nothing more, just clicked his nails together absently and pulled her after him. Ed, came Jesse Korn's urgent transmission. He's got Lydia. He's over the river and will be heading your way. Ed thought for a moment. He'll probably be coming back here to get the stuff in the blind. I'll hide inside. Get him when he comes in. Ed kicked the door open and stepped inside fast. He was concentrating so hard on what he was going to do when the boy got here that he didn't at first pay any attention to the two or three little black and yellow dots that zipped in front of his face, or to the tickle that began at his neck and worked down his spine. But then the tickling became detonations of fiery pain on his shoulders, then along his arms and under them. Oh, God, he cried, leaping up and staring at shock at the dozens of hornets, vicious yellow jackets clustering on his skin. He gave up trying to brush them off and simply ran mindlessly into the woods. Run for the river, he told himself. And he did, speeding faster than he'd ever run in his life. But wait, what was wrong? Ed Schaefer looked down and realized that he wasn't running at all. He wasn't even standing up. He was lying on the ground only thirty feet from the blind, his legs not sprinting, but thrashing uncontrollably. Only God could cure him. And God wasn't so inclined. Not that it mattered, for Lincoln Rhyme was a man of science rather than theology, so he traveled to this hospital in North Carolina in hopes of becoming, if not a whole man, at least less of a partial one. Rhyme now steered his motorized Storm Arrow wheelchair, red as a Corvette, off the ramp of the van in which he, his aide Tom, and Amelia Sachs had just driven 500 miles from Manhattan.
his perfect lips around the controller straw. He turned the chair expertly and accelerated up the sidewalk toward the front door of the Neurologic Research Institute at the Medical Center of the University of North Carolina in Avery. The aide drove off, and Sachs caught up with Rhyme. She was on her cell phone, on hold with a local car rental company. Tom would be spending much of the next week in Rhyme's hospital room, and Sachs wanted the freedom to keep her own hours, maybe do some exploring in the region. Finally, she hung up in frustration. Tom joined them a few minutes later, at the door to the suite they sought. The pert secretary drawled when they entered. You must be Mr. Ram. I'll tell the doctor you're here. Dr. Cheryl Weaver was a trim, stylish woman in her mid-forties. She rose from her desk, smiled, and shook Sachs and Tom's hands, nodded to her patient. Lincoln, I want to go through the preliminaries again. Our approach at the Institute here is an all-out assault on the side of the injury, decompression surgery, and micrografting. Sachs asked, Are there risks? Ryan glanced at her, hoping to catch her eye. But Sachs' attention was wholly on Dr. Weaver. The criminalist recognized her expression. It was how she examined a crime scene photo. Of course there are risks. She looked at Ryan. You have movement of the ring finger of your left hand, and good shoulder and neck muscle control. You could lose some or all of that, and lose your ability to breathe spontaneously. I'm a gambling man. I want the surgery. Dr. Weaver nodded. The procedure is scheduled for the day after tomorrow. I'll be right back with the paperwork. Sachs rose and followed the doctor out of the room. Conspiracy, Ryan muttered to Tom. Mutiny in the ranks. She's worried about you. Worried? That woman drives 150 miles an hour and plays gunslinger in the South Bronx. You know what I'm saying. The door opened. Sack stepped into the office. Someone entered behind her, but it wasn't Dr. Weaver. The man was tall, trim except for a slight paunch, and wearing a county sheriff's tan uniform. Unsmiling, Sack said, You've got a visitor. Mr. Ram, I'm Jim Bell, Roland Bell's cousin. He told me you were going to be in town, and I drove over from Tanner's Corner. Roland was on the NYPD and had worked with Rhyme on several cases. Go on, Sack said to Bell. Tell him what you told me. Rhyme glanced coolly at Sachs. She'd met this man three minutes ago, and already they were in cahoots together. I'm sheriff of Paquinot County. That's about twenty miles east of here. We have this situation, and my cousin Roland can't speak highly enough of you, sir. I thought I'd come over and ask if you could spare us a little time. Ryan laughed. I'm about to have surgery. Oh, we don't need much help. See, cousin Roll told me about some of the things you've done investigations up north. We have basic crime lab stuff, but most of the forensic work around here goes through Elizabeth City, the nearest state police HQ. Takes weeks to get answers. And we got ours, at best, to find a couple girls got kidnapped. Kidnapping's federal. Call the FBI. Sachs was wearing her interested face. Tell us about what happened. Bell nodded. Yesterday, one of our local high school boys was murdered and a college girl was kidnapped. Then this morning, the perp came back and kidnapped another girl. 
He set a trap, and one of my deputies got hurt bad. He's here at the medical center now, in a coma. Sax pulled her long red hair off her shoulders. Why not, Rhyme? What can it hurt? Belle looked back into Rhyme's eyes imploringly. We'd sure be appreciative if you could take a look at the evidence we found and give us any thoughts on where the boy might be headed. Rhyme didn't understand. A criminalist's job is to analyze evidence to help investigators identify a suspect and then to testify at his trial. You know who the perp is. You know where he lives. Your DA will have an airtight case. No, no, it's not the trial we're worried about, Mr. Rhyme. It's finding them before he kills those girls. Sachs asked, You called him a boy, the perp. How old is he? Sixteen, but his history's worse than most of our adult troublemakers. You've checked with his family? Parents are dead. He's got foster parents. We looked through his room at their place. Didn't find any secret trap doors or diaries or anything. One never does, thought Lincoln Rhyme. Sax said, I think we should, Rhyme. Your surgery's not till day after tomorrow. Ah, your ulterior motives are showing, Sax. But she'd made a good point. What was a quad going to do in a small North Carolina town anyway? Lincoln Rhyme's greatest enemy was boredom. Bell added, There have been three other deaths we think the boy might have been involved in. We just didn't find enough evidence to hold him. Sheriff Bell, I'll give you one day, as long as it doesn't delay the operation. But Tom shook his head. Listen, Lincoln, we're not here to work. I don't think it's a good idea. But once Lincoln Rhyme had made his decision to pursue his prey, nothing else mattered. Sheriff, you'll have to set us up someplace we can work. I'll need a forensics assistant. You have a lab in your office? Us? Not hardly. Okay, we'll get you a list of equipment we'll need. We can be there in a half hour. Right, Tom? Sachs wrote a list of the basic forensics lab equipment. The criminalist said to Bell, Just looking over a little evidence isn't going to do any good. If this is going to work, Amelia and I are going to be in charge of the pursuit. Is this going to be a problem for anybody? I'll make sure it isn't. Sachs stopped Bell as he passed through the doorway. The perp. What's his name? Garrett Hanlon. But in Tanner's Corner, they call him the Insect Boy. Paquinoak is a small county in northeastern North Carolina. Tanner's Corner is the biggest town and is surrounded by smaller, unincorporated clusters of residential or commercial pockets, such as Blackwater Landing, which huddles against the Paquinoak River called the Paquo by most locals. South of the river is where most of the county's residential and shopping areas are located. North of the Paquo, on the other hand, the land is treacherous. The great dismal swamp has encroached and swallowed up trailer parks and houses and the few mills and factories on that side of the river. Like most people in the county, Lydia Johansson rarely went north of the Paquo. She now realized that by crossing the river, She'd stepped over some boundary into a place from which she might never return, a boundary that was not merely geographic, but was spiritual, too. She was terrified being dragged along behind this creature, of course, terrified at the way he looked over her body, terrified of his touch. But what scared her the most 
was realizing what she'd left behind on the south side of the river. Her fragile, comfortable life. Her few friends and fellow nurses on the hospital ward. The doctors she flirted futilely with. She remembered the terrible sight at the hunter's blind. Deputy Ed Schaefer lying unconscious on the ground, arms and face swollen grotesquely from the wasp's things. Garrett had muttered, He shouldn't have hurt him. Yellow jackets only attack when their nest's in danger. He'd walked inside slowly, the insects ignoring him, to collect some things. He'd taped her hands in front of her, and then led her into the woods, through which they'd been traveling now for several miles. They pushed on through the hot morning. Garrett led her along a path until they came to a steep hill. I can't climb that. Not with my hands taped. I'll slip. Get your ass up there. Only when you get to the top, don't go any further. Lydia started to climb. She paused halfway, looked back. Garrett was watching her closely, snapping his fingernails, staring at her legs, then looking up higher, under her skirt. Lydia continued to climb, heard his hissing breath as he started up behind her. At the top of the hill, she started along the path into the shade. Hey, Garrett shouted, I told you not to move. It's hot. I'm trying to get out of the sun. He pointed to the ground twenty feet away. There was a thick blanket of pine boughs in the middle of the path. You could have fallen in. You could have ruined it. Lydia looked closely. The pine needles covered a wide pit. What's under there? It's a deadfall trap. A surprise for anybody coming after us. As Bell had promised, Tanner's Corner was twenty miles from the medical center at Avery. The Welcome To sign assured visitors that the town was the home of 3,018 souls, which may have been true but only a tiny percentage of them were evident along Main Street on this hot August morning. The dusty place seemed to be a ghost town. One of Jim Bell's three senior deputies seemed glad to meet Rhyme and Sex, Jesse Korn. He'd been at the crime scene earlier that morning and, with painful guilt, admitted that Garrett had gotten away with the other victim, Lydia, right in front of him. One deputy offering the cool reception was Mason Germain, Dark eyes, graying features, he greeted Ryman Sachs with a stiff, canny nod. Lucy Carr was the third senior deputy, and she wasn't any happier to see the visitors than Mason was. She was a tall woman with a...